just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Saturday. We're into the weekend. Hopefully things ease up a little bit. Kind of a busy weekend. A lot happening last week. And that spells even more things coming for next week. And of course, we'll be here with the Rational Boomer Podcast to talk about all of those things. I want to thank Ed for stopping by yesterday. We did an extra podcast and that involved a show with Ed. It's always good to get his perspective, his point of view. Now, Ed's a little bit older than I am. He's living in the South. He does have a different perspective. Now, the interesting thing about Ed, he was born and raised in Tennessee. Then later, he moved to Minnesota, and I worked with him there for 20, 25 years, something like that. So I've known him a long time. Then when he retired, he moved back down to Tennessee which is typical of people in Minnesota when they become of age to retire. The cold weather here tends to suck. Essentially, from December to March, it can be sub-zero temperatures, crazy amounts of snow. And it's not always that pleasant to be here. Just driving to the store can be treacherous in a snowstorm. So I can understand people wanting to get the fuck out of here. I know I certainly do. But it's interesting, now that I talked to Ed, who's back down in Tennessee, he's retired, he's got the warmer weather, he's telling me, you know, I'm thinking about coming back to Minnesota. I go, what the fuck? Why? Why would you do that? And a lot of it has to do with the climate, the political climate down in Tennessee. It's a very red state, and Ed, of course, is a very blue guy, meaning liberal, democratic. In fact, we have to be really careful what we do on the podcast or if we were to do something on YouTube. He doesn't really want to expose his point of view to potential neighbors down there in Tennessee, and I get it. You want to lead a quiet, calm life, and it's hard to do when you're pissing off the Trumplefox. Nonetheless, he's getting tired of the stuff he's having to deal with down in Tennessee, so he's thinking about coming back to Minnesota. I don't get that. I mean, I love Minnesota, but those five, six months during the winter can be a pain in the ass. You don't get to do as much outside. You end up sitting indoors. Fortunately, what's exciting for me is doing TikToks and podcasts, and I can do that from indoors. But from time to time, I like to get out and enjoy the outdoors. But when it's 20 below and six feet of snow, I mean, who wants to head out into that bullshit? So anyway, he did the show yesterday, and uh, it's always entertaining to talk and listen to Ed. He'll be back next week, as well as some other um, listeners. And as I told you, I believe I've got a podcast that's going to be interesting coming up. I believe I'm recording it late Tuesday night, and it's with the gentleman I told you about, the uh, friend of mine, neighbor of mine for a long time, name is Monty Moyer kind of a subdued, quiet guy, a shy guy, if you will. Uh, But he's very liberal. He's got some interesting insights into things. He has a mutual hatred for racism, as I do. Monty has a biracial daughter, beautiful girl, very smart, very sweet girl. So there'll be a lot for us to talk about. And as I've mentioned, he also happens to be the founder of a R&B band called The Time. Now, The Time was started by Prince and Morris Day. They went on to quite a bit of fame. They were in Purple Rain. Uh, All of the uh, movies they were in and all of the concerts they did, they were a hell of a band, a hell of a band. I remember the first time I saw The Time play. It was at Metropolitan Sports Center. It was an indoor ice arena in Minneapolis. And um, the, the, the concert was uh, Vanity Six, which was a Prince band, The Time, and then it was Prince topping the bill. 
And I got to tell you, on that night, as much as I like Prince, the time kind of stole the show. They were a very entertaining band, had some great music. Now, understand all the music that they did was written by Prince, so (laughs) that might explain why the music was so good. But they were great entertainers, and my friend Monty was a keyboard player in that band. He'd been touring with them as of late, as is recently as a year ago, all over the country, all over the world, on the Grammys, all that kind of stuff. Monty's decided to pull it back a little bit. He's no longer touring with the band, but he's a very uh, talented guy. He's uh, written some hit songs for other people. For example, Pleasure Principle, he wrote for Janet Jackson, which was on the Control album. That was a big hit. If You Were Here Tonight by Alexander O'Neill. The interesting thing about that song, there was a little piece taken out of that song and put into a more current song that went crazy popular. It was a song by Rihanna, and the song was called Work. There's a little piece of Monty's music in there, and he gets writer's credit on it. So there will be a lot of interesting things to talk about when he's on. I believe next Wednesday is when that show will show up in your feed. All right, we start things off with a couple of emails. Uh, this one comes from Kara. I hope it's Kara. My luck, it's Kara. I'm going to go with Kara. Hello, Mike. A little bit about me. I'll be 50 in May. I sure know what the fuck I want for my birthday, lol. Indictments. I was born and raised in Iowa by my mom and her parents. We got a teeny house in Des Moines where my mom still lives. So when I was in school, my friends were black, white, and Asian. It was drilled into me that nobody is better than anyone else because of race, faith, wealth, etc. The big rule in my family was that you never talk religion or politics. Of course, the best family arguments were political, LOL. Very heavy democratic Uh, voting family. I was taught about civic duty and to learn from my mistakes. I currently live in a Trumplefuck country, rural Oklahoma. I I want to talk about decency or lack thereof in American politics and how people have no fucking shame. What happened to shame? And the white Christian conservatives want America to be Christian nation. What the fuck? just like the Founding Fathers. They were pieces of shit, too, and you're right about that. They created the American standard. And I just love it when people criticize me, criticizing the country. Stupid motherfuckers, you want to criticize your country when it's clearly and consistently fucked up? I had a mental breakdown in July of 2020. The country broke my heart fighting over masks, people dying daily by the thousands. I thought we were better than that. And holy fucking shit, religious freaks claiming God is going to protect us from a virus. In parentheses, facepalm. The Christian hypocrisy in politics pushed me too far, so I happily left. Now, I try to stay sane because of Trump. I have lost family and friends. It is infuriating. I can't tolerate the willfully ignorant anymore. There are just no more excuses. The indefensible is constantly being defended. So you, Mike, sometimes you are a light in dark places for people like us. Thank you with all I have. Sincerely, Cara. Well, thank you, Cara. I I appreciate that immensely. And, And frankly, everything you've said, I mirror you know, I think all of us that have a reasonable mind that aren't Trumplefucks have lost members of our family, at least contact with those family members or friends. And uh, part of it is our fault, and a lot of it is their fault. You know, in, in the past, when you'd have an argument with a family member or whatever, it might go on for a while, but you end up getting over it and moving on. And I have trouble doing that, and I suspect you do too. It's one thing if your family member or friend call you an asshole. I mean, hell, they might even be right. They often are in my case. But when you get somebody who, like you say, is willfully ignorant, ignores the truth, the fact, has no interest in justice, 
supports people trying to overturn elections and overthrow this country, well, it's hard to come back from that. It's hard to, um, well, it's it, it, it's hard to forgive somebody of that, that that tries to do that. And I've said this before. It's not so much that I fear for myself. But I have kids and I have grandkids and whatever they're doing now, these Trumplefucks may impact their lives well after I'm gone, a time when I can do nothing to help out. And that troubles me immensely. I had a particular situation with a family member who um, we had one of these arguments. I didn't really wade into it and argue or scream and yell. I stood there and listened. And uh, this person got it all off their chest. They were absolutely wrong. And I pointed it out a couple times, but in an even-tempered tone. They didn't like the fact that I didn't jump in and start yelling and scream, screaming with them. And that's a trick you need to know when you're dealing with Trumplifux. They want to ramp this argument up. They want to yell and scream because that is the platform that they feel comfortable on. They feel they can compete with you. And since Trumplifux don't listen to facts, truth, or care about justice. There's really no sense in arguing with them. There's nothing to be gained. You can't educate them. You can't change their mind. They are full-fledged cult members. They have been brainwashed somehow, some way, and you can't do anything to fix that. And I had occasion to talk to that person after this whole hubbub and after having not talked for a while and it's 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 funny when they come to you you'd you'd think in normal circumstances when they fucked up they'd come to you and say oh geez i'm sorry i just i just lost it and i apologize and if somebody did that to me i could probably deal with it i i don't really have time to worry about people who have these mindsets about politics i really don't care what people think But when you throw it in my face, then you're begging me to engage you. And and I almost have to if you're lying to my face. Um, But they don't do that. They don't come back and say, oh, geez, I'm sorry. They basically, this is what happened. They come back and uh, they're pleading victimhood, you know. Well, I'm left out of this. You don't talk to me. You can't forgive anybody. (laughs) Well, you haven't done anything to cause me to forgive you. You haven't apologized. In fact, what they're doing when they come to me, it's like they're saying, okay, here's another chance for you to apologize. Well, I have nothing to apologize about. I didn't yell and scream. I didn't call somebody out. And I'm not talking bullshit. So I'm not going to apologize for telling the truth to somebody who apparently doesn't know the truth. But that's what they do. They come to you, and then they stand there looking at you as if they're waiting for you to apologize. And this is the behavior of a bully. They never give in. They double down, triple down. They never, ever give in. They will never acknowledge they are wrong, no matter how blatant and flagrant it is. They just won't. And if you're not willing to recognize when you're wrong— then I don't have time for you. You're of no use to me at that point. You know, it's funny, when you talk to these people, they will try to negotiate with you. They will say something like, well, there's three sides to the story. There's your side, my side, and the truth. And I said, that's not the case here. And then they'll say, why can't we compromise and negotiate this? You understand my point, I understand your point. I explained to them that that's impossible. I can't possibly do that. You support racism. You support misogyny. You support anti-Semitism. You support hatred for LGBTQ. You support overturning elections and overthrowing the government. There is no room in there for me to compromise because I believe just the opposite of all those things. There is no compromise with these things. There is right and there is wrong. And unfortunately, even though they don't like to see it, they are fucking wrong and I am right. Now, that said, there are many times when I'm not right and when I realize that I will say it. But when we're talking about something so cut and dried, 
like like either being racist or not being racist. There's no middle ground there. You're either right or you're wrong, and that's where they miss it. They don't understand it. They think somehow I have a need to bend to their will. Well, I would have thought they'd known me better, especially as close as these relatives were. They know I don't bend when I know I'm right. And in this instance, I know absolutely that I'm right. Uh, I had a, a nephew one time hear this story, and he kind of laughed. <laughs> and he said, I don't care what they're arguing about, but what in what parallel universe did they think you would ever bend to fucking anything? And he's absolutely right. I will bend to some things if I realize I'm wrong. <clears throat> but if the argument is between racism and not being racist, wanting to overthrow the government and not wanting to overthrow the government. There is no gray area. There's right and there's wrong. And I just prefer to stick with the right, the right way, not the right side. You get it. All right. I've got one more email. And this one is coming from Joshua. Now, Joshua has written before. Mike, I get it. The justice moves slow, but we are two and a half years post-coup attempt, and those responsible have yet to be held accountable. Also, our justice system has established that POTUS can't be indicted and brought to justice while in office. What message does this send to a sitting president of the United States. Once the Democrats gain the majority, a priority to save our democracy needs to be making a law that sitting presidents absolutely must be held accountable for crimes. I believe that if a president commits a crime, the case should be fast-tracked to the top of the docket. This should become law. Your thoughts. Thank you, Joshua. Well, Joshua, I agree with you completely. And it's like this. We've heard Merrick Garland and many other people saying no one is above the law. If, in fact, there's a rule, it's not a law, some fucking memo that was sent around the DOJ that said you can't indict a sitting president. Now, I know why they would say that. I know why they say that, because it does cause quite a stir and, and, and causes some confusion in this country. But there's got to be a level of crime where it's more important to deal with the criminal than it is to try to save the country from some confusion or chaos and such. But Merrick Garland and many other people will always say no one is above the law. And I say, Pashah. Of course, of course, there are people above the law. And what you're talking about here, Joshua, is a perfect example of it. You tell me no one is above the law. But literally, a president could commit murder and he could not be indicted because of some fucking memo. If we're going to follow a memo, there should be enough wherewithal to create a bill to make it legal, not just a... Uh, a preference or just a recommendation because they treat it with like it's sacrosanct. I haven't seen the memo. I don't know who wrote the memo. I don't know who read the fucking memo. But apparently they take that memo very seriously. I think the idea that no one is above the law is a good idea. It's an idea that we must have in this country. But don't lie to us about it and say no one is above the law, because that is just not true. I mean, we have sitting members of Congress that were involved in the insurrection, and they have yet to be indicted. We had a sitting president who, through the Mueller report, showed us that he committed obstruction of justice 10 separate times. There is no question about that. That is illegal, regardless of whether Donald Trump said he was exonerated, whether William Barr said there's nothing here. The fact is the Mueller report very specifically illustrated that there were 10 occasions of obstruction of justice. Those are crimes committed by the president. 
And unless you're willing to indict the president while he's sitting in the Oval Office, the thought that no one is above the law is absolute bullshit. And I agree with you, Joshua. I said this some time ago. That is something we need to change. Now, why we need to change it now is most important. It's something else you said, Joshua. And it's something I was talking about the other day. These Republicans like to do stuff, do corrupt criminal shit, get away with it, and then thumb their noses at the Democrats. But what they're not thinking about is by setting these precedents that anybody who follows them, could very well be a Democrat, could commit the same offenses now that that precedent has been broken. It's a funny thing about what's going on when you're president or in the uh, Supreme Court. They don't really have rules. They have norms. And no normal person would go over those norms. It would kind of contain people in the White House or in the Supreme Court to not do certain things because of the norms. But then you get some clown like Donald Trump coming to the forefront, becoming president, and those norms don't mean any shit and don't mean shit to anybody. So once he's breached those norms, there's really no going back. Showed the world, he showed future presidents that you really can go that far and nothing will happen. You cannot comply with subpoenas and nothing will happen. So Donald Trump did a lot of disservices to this country. He did a lot of very bad things in this country, many of which he'll be held accountable, maybe starting with the Manhattan District, and we'll talk about that later. But it opens the door for everybody to do these sorts of things. I mean, let's be honest. If you have somebody who commits a crime, there are two reasons you punish them. You punish them to make sure that the person who committed the crime pays for his actions or her actions, right? But it's also intended to be a deterrent. If people understand, well, if I commit this crime, this is going to happen to me, so I better not commit that crime. But if there is no accountability, there are no ramifications for committing this crime, you get some other less than ethical person in Congress, in the Supreme Court, in the Oval Office, they're going to see that as a... uh, an open door for them to do the same. And that is one of the disservices Donald Trump did to this country and to the office of the presidency. He broke it. He broke the norms, and now nobody has to do anything. So if we really want to have people say that no one is above the law, you're absolutely right, Joshua. We need to do something. Even if you're the sitting president in the Oval Office right now and you commit a crime— Not only should you be indicted, you should be the first one and the quickest one indicted because this country put their trust in you and you failed them. And because of the position you have, you are the most dangerous person potentially in this country. You're here to run the country and protect the country. But if you decide to go rogue because of your position and because of your power, you are the most dangerous person in this country, if not the world. So based on that, yes, I agree, we need to change a law or enact a law that all people, no one is above the law, including the president, including sitting members of Congress, including the rich and the corporations. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. You're absolutely right, Joshua. Well, we've got kind of an interesting story here. This came out yesterday, and it's kind of off of what we normally talk about, but it seems like it could have some big effects on this country. It's a little scary if you think about it. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation seized the assets of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, making the largest bank failure since Washington Mutual during the height of the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, the FDIC came in, shut that motherfucker down. 
And from what I've heard, they have assets of $208 billion. That is a lot of fucking money for one bank. And given that they're called the Silicon Valley Bank on the West Coast, you got to think that um, this has to do with the tech industry and a lot of the wealthy people in the tech industry. Now, remember, the FDIC um, insures money left in the bank, but only up to $250,000. And if they have assets of $208 billion, there's got to be a lot of folks that have uh, more than $250,000 in the bank. So this is kind of a scary situation. The other interesting thing is when Washington Mutual was seized and shut down, somebody immediately came in and bought it. It took a little time, but things got back to normal. But when the Silicon Valley Bank was seized and shut down on Friday, and now we're at Saturday... Nobody's jumped in to buy it. That's not to say they won't, but nobody has yet. So what's going to happen, the FDIC takes care of this. They pay out the insurance coverage they have, up to $250,000. Whatever assets the banks have, the FDIC will decide or the lawyers will decide who gets paid back. Well, the problem is not everybody will get paid back. A lot of people will lose a lot of money. And that is a bad sign, especially if this kind of takes off in other banks around the country. We talked to Ed yesterday, and he thought it was tied to this uh, cryptocurrency stuff. And I still don't know if that's the case. But we'll find out more about it. Silicon Valley has heavily exposed to tech industry, and there is little chance of contagion in the bank sector as there was in the months leading up to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. Major banks have sufficient capital to avoid a similar situation. So it shouldn't spread like wildfire like it did in 2008. So the FDIC ordered the closure of Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank and immediately took possession of all deposits at the bank on Friday. The bank had $208 billion in assets and $175.4 billion in deposits as the time of the failure, the FDIC said in the statement. It was unclear how much of deposits was above $250,000, the insurance limit at the moment. Notably, the FDIC did not announce a buyer for Silicon's assets, which is typically what happens. The financial health of Silicon Valley Bank was increasingly in question this week after the bank announced plans to raise up to $1.75 billion in order to strengthen its capital position amid concerns about higher interest rates and the economy. Shares of the SVB Financial Group, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, had plummeted nearly 70% before trading was halted before the opening bell on the NASDAQ. Things weren't healthy. Things just not healthy. And what does that mean to people like you and me? Well, it probably means nothing. Most of us probably don't have accounts in Silicon Valley Bank. But it is interesting to wonder why this happened in this situation. I mean, you have a bank with assets of $208 billion. $208 billion and they fail? They have to be shut down and seized by the FDIC? Something going on there. Something we don't know and something we may not understand. But I can tell you this, it probably has a lot to do with greed and thinking you can get away with shit and ultimately getting caught. I mean, we saw this when Donald Trump's taxes came out. Clearly, he's cheating on his taxes, but that isn't the most disturbing thing. It appears Donald Trump and a lot of rich people, a lot of wealthy corporations, have been cheating on their taxes for fucking decades. And you never heard these people called on the carpet or made to be held responsible for cheating our government. For whatever reason, the IRS and the DOJ ignore wealthy people and corporations for doing fucked up shit. And from time to time, When they keep getting away with this shit, they go too far, and the bottom falls out. Presumably, that's what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. 
They kept getting away with shit. They half-assed things. They got lazy. They took shortcuts. And then all of a sudden, you have this huge, powerful bank, the second biggest in history to fail. How does it fail? There's got to be a lot more to this story that we don't know, and I'm going to be anxious to hear about it. I can guarantee you this, some motherfuckers going to jail. I guarantee you somebody or a bunch of people are going to go to jail. This stuff just doesn't happen out of the fucking blue by accident. Somebody was getting greedy. Somebody was taking shortcuts. Somebody was involved in criminal activity. That's the only way this happens to this degree. It is a little nerve-wracking knowing that a bank as big as Silicon Valley Bank has failed. It's even more nerve-wracking that nobody has jumped in and said, hey, we'll buy the bank, at least as of yet. Now, maybe Monday when they're supposed to open up again, we will hear somebody that's willing to buy them. But the whole thing is very sketchy. We don't know many of the details. The fact is we may never know the details. But I can tell you this, if we ever do find out the details, it will be appalling as to how fucked up that situation is and how much criminal activity was involved. I'm not a banking or financial expert, but like I say, if you have a bank that has assets of $208 billion and you go bust, (laughs) it's not a simple mistake. It's not just some happenstance that uh, caused this problem. There are some deep problems in that bank, and hopefully it doesn't spread to other banks. Because we know what happened in 2008 when all the banks and the financial institutions started to fail. Then they had to get bailed out and all that bullshit. We know how long it took to get out of that. It took Barack Obama coming into office and his eight years to get us back on track. We definitely don't need any bullshit like that. So we'll keep an eye out on this bank, see how things go. Monday we should know more. Probably not enough, but we will know more. And we'll keep a close eye on some other big banks. Hopefully they don't run into similar problems. All right, we'll take a quick break and we will be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So the big story from last week was, of course, coming out of the Manhattan District from District Attorney Elvin Bragg. It's interesting about Elvin Bragg. He prosecuted the Trump Organization for fraud and won that case. The Trump Organization was guilty on multiple fraud charges. That was a big win. But when he first took over for Cyrus Vance last year, there was some thought that he would pursue Donald Trump. But somehow, when Elvin Bragg got in office, uh, he decided, you know, maybe we won't go after Donald Trump. And a lot of people were pissed off. And this isn't good news for Elvin Bragg. He's starting to look like he's a coward or he's corrupt. Nobody really knew what to expect out of Elvin Bragg. Well, then he won the cases, the fraud cases, and he got a little cocky. And he thought, well, maybe this will cause me trouble if I appear to be a coward and don't go after Donald Trump. So then he changes his perspective. And he is currently looking into the fraud charges, the fraud convictions of the Trump Organization, and how they tie to Donald Trump, which, of course, they do because the Trump Organization is not a big company. Everything that happened in the Trump Organization has Donald Trump's DNA all over it, a very hands-on guy. But even so, Elvin Bragg comes out last week, and he tells Donald Trump, he said, uh, you have an invitation to testify in front of the grand jury this coming week. 
And the interesting thing about that is, is that's usually a signal that um, an indictment is imminent. Now, with all the things that are going against Donald Trump these days, over trying to overthrow the government, overturn elections, coerce secretaries of states of Georgia and other states, stealing classified documents, there's a lot of very serious crimes that Donald Trump is being accused of. But the one thing that looks like is the imminent indictment is coming from an old story from 2016, the story where Donald Trump paid off Stormy Daniels, a porn star, because he had a fair or a fling or whatever the fuck he had, paid her off $130,000 to keep her mouth shut. And, of course, he did it through Michael Cohen, his lawyer and his fixer. Michael Cohen would pay her, and then Donald Trump paid him back. Donald Trump thought he was covering himself by doing it that way. Well, that's not the case. So clearly there was a crime there. Um, not a huge, serious crime, not compared to treason or sedition or, or the Espionage Act. Not as serious as that. Those things are still in the wings waiting to see what's going to happen with that. But still, it's a crime. And still, it's clear that Donald Trump committed a crime. We know this because Michael Cohen went on trial for this crime. He was convicted. And he was sentenced to three years. Now, he only spent a year in jail, but he was sentenced to three years. And the weird thing about it is that um, he was just the middleman. Donald Trump was kind of mentioned in passing in this trial as an unindicted co-conspirator. Well, he was unindicted, and we know why he was unindicted, for the very reason we were talking about in the first half of the podcast, that he was a sitting president, and they could not indict him. But they did call him a co-conspirator. So common sense tells you that if Michael Cohen gets convicted of an actual crime, that a co-conspirator would naturally be also guilty of said crime. So after all this stuff going on and Elvin Bragg initially demurring from the idea of indicting Donald Trump, he says, yep, we're going to go after Donald Trump for the Stormy Daniels case. It's a lot like Al Capone, all the horrific things that Al Capone did. They finally got him on tax evasion. Same kind of situation. That's not to say these other incidents aren't going to uh, create indictments, too. They probably will. I'm pretty sure they will. But this is the one that seems the most imminent. Now, of course, if you've got a grand jury looking into the Stormy Daniels payment, you need witnesses, somebody who knew something about what was going on. And that one someone might be Michael Cohen. Now, up until today, Michael Cohen has met and been deposed by the grand jury in the Manhattan District 19 times. They wouldn't keep bringing him back if he didn't have valuable information. He's been deposed 19 times. Now we hear that Donald Trump has been given this uh, invitation to this little grand jury soiree to come testify. And as I said, when they do that sort of thing, it's kind of a courtesy thing or part of the process prior to issuing an indictment. Now, I will tell you this. They do this as a procedure. I guess it's so that a target, and that's what Donald Trump is in this case. He's the only target in this case. Um, give him a chance to give his side of the story. Now, we know Donald Trump, and Donald Trump will not testify. I guarantee you he will not testify, and that might be a mistake on his part. However, no self-respecting lawyer that represents Donald Trump would allow him to go under oath, because he will fuck it up. So that's where we are, but here's the interesting thing. Donald Trump's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, the guy we just talked about, is now scheduled to testify Monday before the Manhattan Grand Jury investigating the hush money payments for a 20th time. 
Now, nobody can talk about what they're talking about. But if they offer this up to Donald Trump and they want Michael Cohen next week for a 20th time, that means we're probably coming to the end. They just want to shore things up with Michael Cohen before they go ahead with the indictment. They want to make sure they have all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. So this is telling us a lot about how imminent this is. This might be a fairly quick thing. This isn't going to put Donald Trump in jail for 20 years. Might even be a misdemeanor. Unless they deal with the campaign finance problems, that's a different deal. Now, Cohen is a key witness in the Manhattan District uh, and Alvin Bragg's investigation, and his testimony is coming at a critical time as prosecutors close in on a decision on whether to seek charges against Trump. Prosecutors sometimes save their most important witnesses until the end stages of the grand jury. Well, it sounds like uh, Michael Cohen was the main witness, having come in there 19 times, soon to be 20 times. Cohen has been meeting regularly with the Manhattan prosecutors in recent weeks, including a day-long session Friday to prepare for his appearance before the grand jury, which has been hearing evidence in the matter since January. Now, of course, Cohen declined to comment to reporters as he left the meeting, saying he'd be taking a little bit of time now to stay silent and allow the DA to build their case, which is probably a good idea. In fact, the judge uh, and the grand jury probably told him, shut your fucking mouth until we get things happening here. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which thus far has declined to comment on the investigation, also declined to address whether Cohen would testify before the grand jury. Now, Trump continued to lash out at the probe on social media on Friday, calling the case a scam, injustice, mockery, and a complete total weaponization of law enforcement in order to affect a presidential election. All the same shit we're used to hearing out of that dumb motherfucker. It's very inflammatory talk, but it's not going to work because it's all lies. It's all bullshit. Prosecutors appear to be looking at whether Trump committed crimes in arranging the payments or in how they were accounted for internally at Trump's company, the Trump Organization. One possible charge would be falsifying business records, a misdemeanor unless prosecutors could prove it was done to conceal another crime, which apparently it was. No former U.S. president has ever been charged with a crime. Prosecutors this week invited Trump to testify, as I said, before the grand jury. That's another sign that the phase of the investigation is winding down. Inviting the subject of an investigation to appear before a grand jury is typically one of the last steps before a potential indictment. Now, you know that Donald Trump and certainly Donald Trump's lawyers know what's up. They know what's up. They know that uh, Michael Cohen paid Stormy Daniels, but that came by way of Donald Trump. There would be no reason in the world for Michael Cohen to make these payments for his personal reasons. He didn't have an affair or a sexual encounter with Stormy Daniels. He was the fixer for Donald Trump, so naturally they would try to cover it up. And as I've always said, sometimes the crime isn't as bad as the cover-up. And I'm guessing they're looking at some covering up in this particular case. So Michael Cohen is going to testify on Monday. Donald Trump has been offered an invitation to testify, which he will not take. So what does that mean in far as indictments? Well, presumably they could come pretty quick. But when we're talking about the legal system, we know how slowly that works. At least there's a, a good sign that something we've all been waiting for is imminent. Let's talk about dipshit Ronnie DeSantis. Now, Ron DeSantis, everybody is planning for him to run for president in 2024, even Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's very angry about it. He's doing all he can to tear down Ron DeSantis. He sees him as an opponent, and he should. 
I personally think neither one of them will be in the mix in 2024, but that's beside the point. Now, Ron hasn't said that he's running for president. However, ahead of a widely expected presidential campaign, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis introduced himself to an eager audience of Iowa Republicans on Friday with a message that leaned into the antagonism toward the left that has made him a popular figure among conservatives. He said, we will never surrender to the woke mob. Um, And there was about a thousand people at Rhythm City Casino in eastern Iowa City of Davenport, his first Iowa stop as he moves towards seeking the 2024 GOP. Our state is where woke goes to die. Funny thing is, these fucking clowns couldn't define the word woke if they wanted to. It's just another buzzword that they use. They get these all the time. They always use the buzzwords, even though they don't know what, they, what it actually means. So there's no reason for the governor of Florida to go to Iowa unless he's testing the waters for a presidential run. And at this point, he's looking to possibly have to go head-to-head against Donald Trump. And that's going to be a tough one because Donald Trump's um, base, while they are dumb as fuck, they are pretty loyal and they are pretty loud. And I have to think that Donald Trump and the trump may destroy Ron DeSantis before he even gets to 2024. He's got some skeletons in his closet. And let's be honest, a lot of people want to compare Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, and he can't. Sure, Ron DeSantis has kind of stolen some ideology and some policies from Donald Trump. He's also a racist, a misogynist, and... Uh, uh, somebody who supports insurrection, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, none of these things are really going to help him in the election. That's the thing that's weird, especially the Roe v. Wade situation. That impacts too many people in this country. Too many people support Roe v. Wade, 70% of this country. But he still thinks he's going to use that as a way to get the nomination. The real problem with Ron DeSantis is he's got no fucking personality. He's not a very dynamic guy. He's not somebody who really is looking to go head to head and mix it up with Donald Trump. Because as dumb as Donald Trump is, he is a loud motherfucker. And if you put him head to head, Donald Trump would destroy him. He'd look stupid doing it, but he would destroy him. Ron DeSantis isn't the best candidate for the base. But the base and a lot of the Republicans are looking at Donald Trump as damaged goods, and they should. He's likely to get indicted. A lot's been exposed by him, and anybody who stands close to him is is going to be destroyed as well. So a lot of people are backing off of Donald Trump, so they need some other lord and savior to follow. And in their minds, it's Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is not a good candidate for president. He doesn't have the personality or the uh, internal fortitude. Donald Trump is stupid and he's a criminal. But I have to give Donald Trump this. He doesn't fucking give up, even though he should many times. Now, the Iowa caucuses are less than a year away. Republicans in the state are taking a harder look at DeSantis, who is emerging as a leading rival to Donald Trump, the former president, who is mounting his third bid for the White House. He will be in Davenport on Monday. Donald Trump will be there. Do you think he'll have anything to say about uh, Ron DeSantis? Trump mocked DeSantis' trip on social media, asking, why would people show up? Big talk, Donnie. You're having rallies now and nobody shows up. You go talk at CPAC and there's dozens and dozens of empty seats. And White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre took issue with the Florida governor's threatening language that criticized young transgender people and their parents. This is this is going to be yet another problem for Ron DeSantis, his issue, his fight with transgender folks. 
Now, we had Maddie on a couple of days ago, and it was interesting to hear her perspective as a transgender person. It's got to be a scary time for transgendered folks, mainly because you know, you, you, you only really need to look at uh, Nazi Germany and see what's going on now uh, were some of the things that were going on in Nazi Germany. Now, that's not to say I expect to see a similar situation, but these folks who are marginalized groups are going to be even more marginalized and maybe put in danger because for whatever reason, the Republicans, the Trumplefucks, are absolutely scared to death of transgender people. Now, when these MAGA Republicans don't agree with an issue or with policy, they don't bring forth something that's either going to have a good faith conversation. They go to this conversation of woke. Again, what do they mean by woke? They don't know. What that turns into is hate, and that's exactly what it is. It's not they don't support people who are woke. They support hate. And then, of course, you get some pretty despicable policy. But a thousand people did show up Friday evening in Des Moines, where DeSantis ignited his biggest ovation by accusing schools of seeking to impose leftist agenda on students on issues of gender and race. He's a big critical race theory guy, you know. And it's been explained that critical race theory is not taught in any class lower than uh, college. We've got governors signing bills outlawing critical race theory in their state, in their public schools, even though no such thing is even being taught. This is really about them being concerned about our ancestors who were involved in slavery exposing that they don't want anything that suggests that white people did something wrong they want to whitewash that and tell the story they want to tell and what's that old axiom if we don't know history we are doomed to repeat it well in the 60s 70s we saw a lot of racism In the 1850s and 60s, we saw slavery. I don't want to repeat either one of those motherfucking things. This country has come a long way, but in the last four to six years, we seem to have gone back in history, back to the things that we fought so hard for to get rid of. These Trumplefucks want to bring it back to the surface and make it a part of our daily life. And I'll tell you this, I'm not going to stand for it from my perspective. If I see somebody come up to me and say something racist or against LGBTQ people, I'm going to be hard-pressed to hold my tongue. (laughs) That may not be surprising to you. I don't hold my tongue very often. But I will certainly wade into the argument if somebody has the audacity and the ignorance to actually bring it up to me. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Ron DeSantis will not be the candidate for president for the Republican Party in 2024. He's not a strong enough candidate. It's too early. It's two years down the road or a year and a half down the road. He's just not strong enough. And he's going to have to survive Donald Trump ripping him apart every day. Watch what he says on Monday when Donald Trump goes to Iowa. He's going to talk about all the wonderful things he's done, and he's going to spend half the time destroying Ron DeSantis. And I'm going to enjoy it. Watch these clowns go back and forth. I'm just waiting for DeSantis to actually step up and be strong against Donald Trump. Then the shit show will start, and they will both be reduced to rubble when it's all over. We haven't talked about George Santos lately. I like to bring that up now and again because it takes away the attention from the Trumplefucks in the House of Representatives and all the stupid shit they're doing. They love the exposure. They love the publicity, but they can't get it as long as George Santos is stealing the show. Now, we know that George Santos is corrupt. He's a liar. 
done some questionable things with money, donating $700,000 to his campaign when he was only making $55,000 a year. How do you do that? Well, there's one way he might have done it. A former roommate of Representative George Santos of New York accused the Republican on Wednesday of being a ringleader in a credit card fraud scheme in 2017. Well, maybe there's a way to get $700,000. The accusation part of a sworn declaration by Gustavo Ribeiro uh, Trelha, sent to federal officials and first reported by Politico, names the lawmaker as the one in charge of the crime in Seattle that Trelha was ultimately convicted for. In the declaration, Trelha said he knew Santos as Anthony DeVolder, the name Santos used before he ran for Congress, and uh, that they... Uh, lived together in Florida. He said Santos taught him how to skim card information and how to clone cards. He gave me all the materials and taught me how to put skimming devices and cameras on ATM machines, Trella said. He said in his declaration that Santos had a warehouse in Orlando, Florida that stored a lot of material, including parts, printers, Blake, ATM, and credit cards. Trelha was arrested after being caught on camera taking a skimming device off an ATM in Seattle, according to the police. He said in his declaration that Santos stole money that he collected from his, for his bail. Now, Trelha pleaded guilty to felony access to device fraud and served three months in prison before being deported to Brazil in 2018. Santos was questioned about the ATM skimming case, but not named as a subject as yet, according to CBS. The case reportedly remains open. The latest allegation comes from the House Ethics Committee launched a probe into Santos last week, an investigation that joins a number of others into the congressman. Um, and if you don't know what they're talking about with the ATM skimming, it's something you should know and something you should be wary of. We all use ATM machines at one point or another, and there's a spot where you put your card in. Well, these people have been skillful enough to create parts that fit over the spot where you put your card in. It doesn't stop you from getting your money. It doesn't stop you from accessing the ATM and, and your bank account. But what it does is, when you put your card in, it goes through their skimmer, takes off all the information, then goes into the ATM machine, and then you get your money out. You don't know that anything happened. It all looks pretty normal. But then that skimming part is collected, and they've got lists and lists of people's credit cards with all the numbers they need coming off the uh, chip or coming off the, uh, the, the, the um, magnetic uh, strip on the back. And that's what he was doing. I have a feeling that they're going to find some evidence because George Santos isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. He seems to get caught at every turn. And I have a feeling he'll get caught in this situation as well. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is this debt ceiling situation. We know that uh, come June or thereabouts, July maybe, that Congress is going to have to raise the debt limit in order to not crash the economy in this country and maybe crash the global economy. Now, the Republicans are being tough guys. We're going to hold you hostage unless you make certain cuts. As I was saying with uh, Ed yesterday, um, it's, they're in a tough situation now because Joe Biden gamed them a little bit and took Social Security and Medicare off the board. They say they don't want to touch it. Of course they do, and they'll try to slide it back in at some point down the road. So Joe Biden gives his budget, and he says to Kevin McCarthy, okay, show us your budget, and we'll try to work this out. Well, Kevin McCarthy hasn't been able to uh, um, come up with a budget. <clears throat> Apparently, it's in the same spot where they have their health care plan. Uh, 
something we've never seen. But but a cadre of, of far-right Republicans announced Friday that they may only vote to raise the debt ceiling if Congress agrees to cut hundreds of billions of dollars in social spending, limit federal agencies, future budgets, and abandon progressive elements of President Joe Biden's economic agenda. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that... Uh, um, what they want to do is would be absolutely devastating um, to this to this country. It would cut virtually everything, and Joe's just not going to pull that shit. He's not going to do it. Since Washington's arbitrary and arguably unconstitutional borrowing limit was breached in January, the Treasury Department has implemented extraordinary measures enabling the U.S. government to meet its obligation for a few additional months, unless the Biden administration takes unilateral action to disarm the debt ceiling. Congress has until sometime between July and September to increase or suspend the nation's borrowing cap. If Republicans refuse to do so, the U.S. is poised to suffer a catastrophic result. Now, this, of course, is led by Scott Perry, who is uh, a criminal in his own right. I think the FBI still has his fucking phone, and they're going through it. But he is the leader of the House Freedom Caucus. He said Friday in a statement that its 45 members would consider voting to raise the debt limit if their colleagues in the House and Senate agree to find every dollar spent by Democrats that can't be reclaimed for the American taxpayers. Capitol Hill's deficit hawks are eager to attack the poor and slash popular programs. They don't support reducing the ever-expanding U.S. military budget or hiking taxes on corporations enriched to increase revenue, rescinding IRS funding boost. Meanwhile, they would help wealthy households evade taxes and add an estimated $114 billion to the federal deficit. See, this is what they want. They want to take money from you. They want to hand money to the rich. And this is so often the case. So the House Freedom Caucus held this press release uh, outlining the position on the debt limit. And when asked whether Republican House Speaker Representative Kevin McCarthy may cut a deal with the Democrats on the issue, the group collectively laughed out loud. They laughed about this. At a Friday morning presser, the uh, Republican caucus that figured prominently in the speaker election presented what caucus chair Representative Scott Perry said is their responsible solution for the imposed crisis. So they laughed at the thought that Kevin McCarthy would cut a deal with the Democrats. They laughed about it. Well, I will guarantee you this, Kevin McCarthy will cut a deal with the Democrats because he has no option. They want to support the rich. They want to feed the rich with free money. Well, if they don't raise the debt, the economy will crash, and certainly it will hurt all of us. But it will hurt the wealthy and corporations just as much, if not more. They are not going to let that happen. That's not going to happen. This is all about playing the bully and trying to play chicken with Joe Biden. Apparently, they haven't learned anything because every time they've tried to play chicken with Joe Biden, they've gotten their ass kicked. And in this instance, they will get their ass kicked. You listen to the media and they're going, oh, we got to worry. The economy's going to be crashed because the Republicans are so tough. Here's what you need to understand. They aren't that tough. They never have been that tough. It's that the Democrats have always folded and bowed to these fucks. But times have changed. The Democrats are no longer doing that. Joe Biden's not going to do it. He's not going to negotiate with these fucks at all. He's going to walk it right up to the date when everything might go to shit. And guess what? The Republicans will blink because they will lose more than the Democrats if that debt limit is not raised. It will basically destroy any chances for any Republican to ever win an election for the next 10 to 20 years. They know this. 
they're acting tough now and they're making claims and they're trying to play chicken, but they're going to bail. They got to bail. Assuming all the Republicans understand the ramifications of doing something like this. I know there are some Republicans that try to compare this to when the government was shut down for one reason or another. Vastly different things. You can shut the government down for a week, two weeks, even a month, and it'll be a problem and it will be difficult, but it won't destroy the economy. Not raising the debt limit will destroy the economy. And anybody that's got money invested is going to lose. That means your 401ks, but it also means all the money that corporations and the wealthy have too. There is no way the Republicans are going to allow that to happen. You got 20 or 30 people in the MAGA group in the House. That's not even a majority of the Republicans in the House. At some point, those other Republicans are going to have to step up because if they don't, that's basically a suicide mission for the Republican Party. They can make their threats. The media can try to scare us, but it's not going to happen. There is no way it's going to happen. So let them throw their shit out there. At some time between now and June, I have a feeling some of those members of Congress may get indictments, and that might make them a little too busy to worry about the debt ceiling. All right, we are going to wrap things up for the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen. I hope you have a great day, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.